Well, today we reach the rough halfway point of our sermon series on Jesus's parables in the Gospel of Luke. But today is also a great example of why I've been affectionately referring to this sermon series as Look Closer. That's because the parables we read in Luke 14, verses 7 through 14, may sound like simple, practical advice about table manners. But if we look closer, there's much more to think about. Jesus addresses bigger issues of pride, humility, social status, and what or who exactly we live for. And ultimately, these parables force us to consider what kind of people we Christians, saved by God's grace, bought by Christ's blood, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, what kind of people we Christians are called to be. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the not terrible temperatures this time of year. Uh, We praise you for for that, that simple pleasure that is more than just a simple pleasure. Uh, It really is a a gift of your grace that we so often take for granted. And Lord, thank you for this place and these people, the opportunity that we have to worship you here. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you, beneficial for us. Uh, I pray that you would bring to attention the things that we are tempted to forget or overlook, the things that we need to be reminded of. I pray that you would Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable uh, as we need from time to time. I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts and in our minds this morning. And Lord, we do lift up this church. Again, as we said earlier, there are people dealing with hardships, bringing baggage into church with them. And we do not come here to escape the hardships of life uh, as if we can somehow do that. Uh, Rather, we come here to know that you are good and that you are sovereign through the hardships of life. And that regardless of our circumstances, uh, there are some things that we can still count on, some things that we can still rely on, some truths that we can still plant our feet on. And that is the truth of our salvation in Christ. That is the truth of your goodness and your sovereignty. Uh, That is the truth of Christ's death and resurrection and return. Uh, When everything else around us seems to be falling apart, I pray that we would dig even deeper our heels into those great truths that you've given us. And again, we just thank you for this opportunity to be here. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ, new faces and old faces. I pray that our worship this morning would be honoring to you. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus's meal in Luke 14 with a group of Pharisees gets off to a pretty rocky start. It all begins when a man with dropsy, a medical condition that led to painful internal and external swelling, barges into the dinner and asks Jesus to heal him. 
And when Jesus does, the Pharisees were less than pleased. After all, this meal took place on the Sabbath, and Jews were not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But in the end, Jesus uses this disagreement with the Pharisees to expose them as inhumane hypocrites. People who do not understand his law or God as well as they think they do. Jesus also uses the events of this meal as a jumping off point to tell several parables that involve food. And that brings us to our passage, Luke 14, starting in verse 7. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I don't know about you, But at first glance, verses 7 through 11 sound like good, old-fashioned common sense. Don't be presumptuous. If you assume things, you may end up looking like a, you know, the rest. Jesus' words here align well with the simple, practical wisdom of Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. The point's pretty simple, pretty basic, isn't it? It is better to humbly take a low seat at the table and then get promoted than to take a high seat and get demoted. One approach will leave people impressed with your wisdom. The other will leave you humiliated before them. Basic enough, right? But when we look closer, this parable is about more than a healthy level of self-awareness or good PR tactics at a public meal. Meals in the ancient world, especially more formal banquets or feasts, were highly structured. They were highly choreographed events. There was a strict decorum to be observed. There were rules about who should be invited, where people should sit, and who they should sit with. And in the end, all these rules held up social status. These meals were about asserting And perhaps flaunting one's importance over others. It was all about appearances. Now you may think this sounds bizarre, but if you've ever watched a show like Downton Abbey, you see the same thing. 
Every detail about a meal mattered and sent some kind of message about dignity, honor, and authority. For a more contemporary parallel, think about the President's State of the Union a few nights ago. Everyone there is performing both for the cameras and for their peers. Everyone is strategically choosing what to wear, where to sit, who to be seen with, when to clap, when to stand, when to sit, when to smile, and when to scowl. It's all sending a message. It's all about appearances. And the Pharisees apparently knew all about this code. In Luke chapter 11, verse 43, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of loving the best seats at meals. In chapter 20, verses 46 and 47, Jesus tells us that the religious leaders, the scribes, loved long greetings. They loved impressive robes that showed how important they were. They loved taking the place of honor at feasts. They wanted public approval. They cared about status. But on top of the Pharisees, on top of the other religious leaders, Jesus' own disciples knew how to play this game. In chapter 9, verse 46, the disciples argue about who is greatest before Jesus gently rebukes them. But apparently they didn't quite absorb Jesus' words because they pull the same stunt in Luke 22, verse 24. Mere hours before Jesus' arrest, they're jockeying for position. They're worried about power and status. And let's be honest. We know how to play power and status games, too. We have our own customs, our own practices in this day and age to establish or maintain our place in the pecking order. We send messages about our power and status through the cars that we drive, the houses we live in, the clothes we wear, and the food we eat. We make sure we portray ourselves in certain ways through highly curated social media content. We know how to keep up appearances, especially if doing so can get us ahead in the world. Well, we would be wise to heed Jesus' practical advice, to not get too big for our britches. But we would also be wise to look closer at the bigger point. Look again at verse 11. Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That statement encompasses more than just table manners. It's about more than social status. It concerns the attitude, the disposition, that we followers of Jesus have before both God and mankind. An attitude of humility. Andrew Murray once defined humility as 
the place of entire dependence on God. The first duty and the highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. C.S. Lewis once famously said that humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Another scholar describes humility as the proper posture before God and others. One pastor calls humility assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And John Stott once wrote, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Now, those definitions, those observations, I think can be helpful. However, it also seems that humility is one of those things that's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. The Old Testament and New Testament alike speak extensively about humility. Look at Psalm 25, verses 8 and 9. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. The Apostle Peter talks about humility as well. First Peter chapter five, starting in verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. When you think about it, we cannot become one of God's people without some sense of humility to begin with. By the Spirit's power, we must recognize our sin and humbly come to the cross seeking God's mercy. And it's only by his grace that we can be exalted. So God's people are humble people. Primarily because we understand. We remember how fallen we are and how great God is. We are humble not simply because it's the right thing to do. Or because our parents raised us that way. Or because the latest, greatest leadership book emphasizes its usefulness. We are humble because we know who we are and because we know who God is. Of course, the attitude and disposition of humility is easier said than done, isn't it? We often like humility more in theory than in practice. We may love when others show it, but can be less than eager to do it ourselves. We might find those willing to clean the toilets, change the diapers, and mow the grass to be quite endearing, quite admirable. But we're also not looking to take their place. We will need the Spirit's help to embody the kind of godly humility 
that Jesus commands. But let's also be honest. In many ways, in our cutthroat, dog-eat-dog, type-A personality world, humility is not always the best way to get noticed. It's not always the best way to get rewarded. But God sees humility. And that's a good segue into Jesus' next parable. Going back to Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You know, the Pharisees may have found Jesus's words in verses 7 through 11 to be pretty reasonable, pretty tame, pretty wise. And verses 12 through 14 may have been seen by some as a great example of generosity and hospitality. But once again, if we look closer, there's more to it than that. Because in addition to meals in the ancient world being about social status and pride, they were also about giving and receiving favors. This was known as the patronage system. That's fancy terminology for I scratch your back, you scratch mine. Our friends in the legal industry might call it quid pro quo. Inviting someone to a meal in that day and age could be a way of putting them into your debt. And then failing to reciprocate was unthinkable. In the patronage system, every gift, every gesture had some string attached. A modern example comes from an episode of The Office. Andy and Dwight get into a subtle, unstated battle to not because they just best and most favors for the other. Not because they genuinely want to help each other. Not because they care about each other. But because they want the other to owe them something. It's all about leverage. Which is why they fight to see who can be the last to do the other a favor. But Jesus' words here, his command to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, that turns the patronage system on its head. Because hanging out with that crowd certainly isn't going to help your social status. On top of that, it doesn't help you to do a favor for those who can't return the favor. These people had nothing to offer. Leverage over them doesn't get you anything. And in the patronage system, if there's no return on investment, if there's no payout, 
then why even do it? But Jesus makes it clear that while there may be no temporal reward for that kind of meal, there is an eternal reward. The world might not see your efforts, but God does. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, your father who sees in secret takes notice. And in the big scheme of things, his audience is the one that matters most. Now, like we talked about in verses 7 through 11 with social status, I think we understand this temptation as well. How often do we judge how to use our time, spend our money, or invest our energy by asking the question, what's in it for me? How often do we determine the value of those around us, people made in God's image by what they can offer us? How often do we use people as tools for our own self-aggrandizement? our own greed, or our own ambition. Well, Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, challenges us to remember the God-given dignity of those around us. And that includes those that we in the world are tempted to look down upon. So again, if we look closer... There really is more going on in these parables than table manners or hospitality. When we put them together, the bigger question may be this. What kind of people are we Christians called to be? Well, I think we are called to be humble servants. We recognize our status as no better than anybody else around us. We recognize our status as fallen creatures before our holy God. And we recognize the status of others as people made in God's image, rather than resources for us to use, abuse, or exploit. That is who we are. In obedience to Christ. But this passage does raise a few other closely related questions. Questions like, how might we fall into the trap of pursuing worldly honor over eternal honor? In the parable of the sower, Jesus warns us against getting choked out by thorns. Letting the cares, the concerns, the priorities of the world suffocate and starve his word within us. How often might our desire for worldly success, applause, and approval trip us up as followers of Jesus? The Corinthians fell into that trap. They prized worldly wisdom and rhetoric over the wisdom of the Spirit and the message of the cross. So what did the Apostle Paul do? He reminded them of the core of the gospel. Christ crucified. That leads to another question. 
How do God's people, those who follow a Christ who ended up on a cross, how do we define success? The world often defines success as power, wealth, and autonomy. The ability to boss people around, pat our wallets, and do what we want with no one else to answer to. But as Christians, our definition of success is quite different. If we have to boil it down to one word, it might be faithfulness. Faithfulness to our God and faithfulness to our calling is success, even when the world looks at us as foolish. Doing the stuff and being the people God calls us to be might not make us successful in this life, but it will make us faithful. And eternally speaking, faithfulness is what success looks like for God's people. And one final question. If we have to choose between worldly honor and success over honor and success in God's kingdom, which path will we take? With time, this seems to be less and less of a hypothetical question. One prominent and albeit controversial theory is known as the three worlds theory, positive, neutral and negative. In a positive world, the Christian faith was an asset in our culture. Being a Christian helped you get ahead. In a neutral world, being a Christian didn't help or harm your efforts to get ahead in the world. It was just there. It didn't really matter either way. But in a negative world, which this theory says that we now inhabit, being a Christian, or at least being a Christian who takes the Bible seriously, can actively endanger your ability to get ahead or stay ahead in the world. So if we must choose... Receiving honor, glory, and reward before the world or before God. What choice will we make? Will we be humble servants of Christ by the power of the Spirit, striving for faithfulness? Or will we let the world set our agenda, determine our priorities, and dictate our values, our beliefs, and our convictions? Which path will we take? We've seen this morning that Luke 14, 7 through 14, is about a lot more than just table manners. It's also about more than just being hospitable. It's about humility. It's about a willingness to serve those who have nothing to offer us. It's about what kind of people we Christians are called to be. And of course, these parables can also serve as a reminder of the basic truths of the gospel. They ought to remind us of who exactly Jesus is, the Lord we claim to follow. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, 
starting in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. The gospel is the story of God's son voluntarily and temporarily foregoing his status, his position and his comfort in heaven in order to humble himself for those who had nothing to offer him. Poor, crippled, lame and blind sinners like us. But he was ultimately exalted by God. We will have a place at the eternal meal with our creator by faith in Jesus Christ. The one who humbled himself and then was exalted. The one who died for our sins and rose from the grave. And God has given us this gift, not so that we might owe him a favor. But he's given it out of his grace, his kindness, his mercy and his generosity. So as his people, may we humble ourselves, trusting that he will exalt us. May we follow in his footsteps by the power of the spirit as humble servants before God and man. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for your spirit who lives within us. Thank you that the challenges, the calling, the tasks that you lay before us are not mere moralism. That your word and your gospel are not just about making us better people, but rather they're about making us your people. And thank you that as we read these commands to humble ourselves, thank you that we do not achieve this on our own. Your spirit is at work within us. You give us the example of Christ. You give us the church, your word, to hold us accountable. Lord, more than anything, I pray that you would change our hearts, change our minds, make us the humble people that we aren't always naturally inclined to be. When we read that story about poor, crippled, lame, blind people who had nothing to offer in the ancient world, as we read that story of them being invited to a meal, I pray that we would see ourselves, that we have nothing to offer before you. We have no leverage over you. We have no favors that we can offer you. The only way that we can possibly be in your presence is 
by your grace, your kindness, and your generosity. So, Lord, humble us. Help us see ourselves in those people. Humble us so that we can treat those around us as people made in your image, not things for us to use to our advantage. Help us be the humble servants you call us to be. Help us be the humble servant that you yourself embodied. You humbled yourself, Lord Jesus, taking on the form of a man and submitting to death, even death on a cross. And you were highly exalted. You sit at the Father's right hand, even as we speak, even as we pray. And you will one day come as king and judge over the world. So, Lord, help us follow in your footsteps. Help us humble ourselves that we might be exalted in your presence by your grace. We love you. We worship you. We praise you. We thank you for your kindness to us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.